Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Never Judge, Always Forgive. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 17, 2017. When I finished reading Kate Hennessy's new biography of her famous grandmother this past July, it's called Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, 2017. I felt a sort of heaviness, three generations of so much family pain and sorrow. Hennessy, who was born in 1960, says that it took her five years to write this family memoir about her paradoxical grandmother, Dorothy Day, her many complexities and contradictions and in particular, the deeply complicated mother-daughter relationship between, between Dorothy Day and her only child, Tamar. Hennessy, the author, is the youngest of Tamar's nine children. Her book strips away the hagiography that often surrounds her grandmother, Dorothy Day, who was now on track for Catholic sainthood, and also the Catholic Worker Movement that she founded with Peter Morin in 1933. In many ways, their family story raises fundamental questions about the means and ends of ministry. The genius of Hennessy's book, though, is how she tells these deeply painful and personal stories with a rare mix of candor, compassion, respect, and even genuine gratitude. At the end of the day, the book is suffused with the spirit of forgiveness and acceptance. In the Gospel this week, Peter asked Jesus, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? It's a loaded question when you remember that Peter denied ever knowing Jesus and then subsequently deserted him. No doubt Peter was proud to appear so extraordinarily merciful as to forgive someone seven times. But Jesus exploded Peter's arithmetic of forgiveness. God's pardon, which we are called to imitate, far exceeds even our most exaggerated ideas about forgiveness. Jesus told a parable about an unmerciful servant who received forgiveness for his million-dollar debt. Then, instead of forgiving a tiny debt that he was owed, he imprisoned his debtor. Jesus told us to forgive not merely seven times, but seventy-seven times, or maybe seventy times seven. Divine forgiveness, given and received, is beyond calculation or comprehension. It was so flabbergasting to the original audience that later scribes couldn't agree on exactly which number Jesus had said. Forgiveness on that scale is wildly disproportionate to the sincerity of the penitent or the seriousness of their offense. Anyone who seeks serial forgiveness makes us question their motives. But Jesus says it doesn't matter. 
we still forgive them. Later, after his resurrection, Jesus restored Peter as they sat around a charcoal campfire. No doubt a painful reminder of the charcoal campfire when he betrayed Jesus at his crucifixion. St. Augustine once commented, Do not despair. One of the thieves was saved. He then cautioned, Do not presume. One of the thieves was damned. Jesus linked receiving forgiveness with offering forgiveness in a sort of law of reciprocity. We can expect divine forgiveness in the measure that we extend human forgiveness. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Similarly, in the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We can only long for ourselves what we lavish upon others. In this week's epistle, Paul says that we should never look down on another person, that is, despise scorn, or treat a person with contempt, Romans 14. This same word occurs 11 times in the Greek New Testament and was used by Jesus who warned us about people who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. The early monastics were adamant on this point. The monk, says Abba Moses, must never judge his neighbor at all in any way, whatever. Instead of judging others, God calls us to protect them. They said of Abba Macarius that just as God protects the world, so Abba Macarius would cover the faults he saw as though he did not see them, and those he heard as though he did not hear them. The reason for this is an awareness of both human nature and the character of God. Saint Maximus the Confessor in the seventh century said, the person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. He knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment each of those who are trying to make progress. And so Paul writes in the epistle for this week, Romans 14, Romans 15, accept one another just as God has accepted you. Similarly to the Ephesians, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Stanley Vishnewski, a close friend of Dorothy Day who joined the Catholic Worker Movement in 1934 and remained with them until his death in 1979, once observed that people came to the Catholic Worker expecting to find saints, and instead they found human beings. Robert Ellsberg, who transcribed and edited Dorothy Day's handwritten diaries, calls Hennessy's biography 
a quote-unquote stunning work. Why? Because it reminds us that holy people are actual human beings. And because actual human beings are deeply imperfect, we all need to give and receive forgiveness and never judge one another. At the end of her biography of her grandmother, Hennessy recalls how her mother, Tamar, who suffered so much and for so many reasons, once told her, you don't grow up until you forgive your parents. And, we could add, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your boss, even and especially your own self. For books this week, I review a memoir by Ibtisam Barakat. It's called Balcony on the Moon, Coming of Age in Palestine. New York, Farrar Strauss Giraud, 2016. This book is 217 pages long. This new memoir by Ibtisam Barakat, born in 1963, picks up where her award-winning title, Tasting the Sky, from 2007, left off. That earlier book described her childhood years living under the Israeli occupation after the 1967 Six-Day War. This new memoir, Balcony, is set in the 1970s and concludes with her graduation from high school and admission to Birzeit University in 1981. What's clear now is that even as a little girl, Barakat was a precocious and independent spirit who always wanted to be a writer. She imagined herself singing the Athan, that is, the Islamic daily call to prayer. When she was 12, and despite vociferous protests from her parents, she got a summer job in a factory. She dared to ride her brother's bike, even though her mother protested that girls were supposed to quote-unquote keep their legs together. At school, she started a pen pal club. At home, she copied down English words and deposited them in a toy bank. This is my word wealth, she writes and I plan to add to it daily so that I will have more language knowledge than my classmates have money. As you would expect, there are also themes of an adolescent's political coming of age and consciousness. The curfews, snipers, checkpoints, and bomb blasts. She begins to notice all the graffiti in Ramallah. The symbols, names, and events, she says, are, quote, shreds of our Palestinian history. When she discovers the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, she copies the entire document into her notebook and begins to quote it to people. For example, My father has a right to rest, Article 24. Everyone has the right to work, Article 23. Similarly, as a young girl, she chafed at the traditional constraints and gender roles placed upon girls. She did not envy her mother, who left school when she was 13, married at age 15, bore seven children, and spent her life cooking and cleaning for a family of nine people. Remarkably, her mother came to admire Ibtisam's independence 
and under her daughter's tutelage at home, studied to pass her high school graduation exam. No doubt, or at least we can hope, there will be a third installment that describes Barakat's later move to New York City, her internship at The Nation magazine, and development into an important feminist Palestinian voice as a writer, speaker, poet, and translator who is fluent in both Arabic and English. Today, she lives in Columbia, Missouri. The name of the author again is Ibtisam Barakat, and the title of her second memoir, Balcony on the Moon. For movies this week, I review Being Mortal from the year 2015. This documentary by PBS Frontline is a one-hour distillation of the 2014 book of the same title. I usually think of books as being more substantial than their movie counterparts, but with this film, I'm not so sure. The personal stories that you see and hear in the movie are simply profound. Atul Gawande is a general surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and professor at Harvard Medical School. Gawande says that we've been seduced by the prevailing fantasy that we are ageless. Instead of acknowledging the limits of medical treatments, we have turned mortality into an almost purely medical exper experience, which in turn has led to denial, dishonesty, arrogance, and, for the elderly and dying, horrible social isolation. Whereas the vast majority of people used to die at home among a multi-generational family, by the 1980s only 17% of us did. This reduction of mortality to medicine, says Gawande, has done tremendous harm instead of healing. The movie explores the deeply personal stories of doctors, patients, and Gawande's own father's death from spinal cancer and how his family dealt with that. There are numerous practical takeaways from this film in the book. Most notable might be Gawande's observation that, quote, sometimes you can't count on your doctor to take the lead. The patient must do that. Once again, this is a PBS Frontline movie. It's called Being Mortal, the same title as the 2014 book by Atul Gawande. And for poetry, we posted a poem by Scott Cairns of the University of Missouri, born in 1954. This poem is called Eremite. The cave itself is pleasantly austere, with little clutter, nothing save a narrow slab, a threadbare woolen wrap, and in the chipped-out recess here, three sooty icons lit by oil lamp. Just beyond the dim cave's aperture, 
a blackened kettle rests among the coals, whereby each afternoon a grip of wild greens is boiled to a tender mess. The Aramite lies prostrate near two books, a gospel and the Syrian's collected prose, whose pages turn assisted by a breeze. Besides the thread of wood smoke rising from the coals, no other motion takes the eye. The old man's face is pressed into the earth, his body stretched as if to reach ahead. The pot boils dry. He feeds on what we do not see and may be satisfied. The title of the poem, Eremite, by Scott Cairns. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 17th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.